Welcome to the latest edition of the Shukri Rights Podcast with your host, Shukri Rights. Today, I am joined by one of the big names in, in this radio industry, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Andy Gresh of CBS Sports Radio, WPRI 12 in Providence. My man, what's going on? I thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for the invite, number one. And apparently, I have quite a notorious reputation, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> So oh, I, I, I guess being honest sometimes blows up in your face. You know, it's like that old Chappelle show skit. I guess I am proof that sometimes keeping it real can go wrong. You know what's funny? I like for you to actually live up to that reputation during this podcast. Cause, <laughs> cause this is, this is my open door invite for you to keep it a hundred. Like don't, don't have a filter. Cause like that, those are the best interviews that way. In fact, I had Christian Arcan on the Sports Hub uh, last summer, and and w- someone told me when when they had the chance to listen, they were like, "Dude, that's actually one of the best interviews you've ever done." And it's not and it's not to say that you like you're uh, you're a bad host. That's not the case, but because the way that neither one of you had a filter, it was like you two guys in a bar having a conversation over a beer or two, and that's that's what I try to strive for when I have guests, and and I I want to make my guests feel comfortable and know and feel that that I am interested in. That's my goal. Yeah, it's interesting because I think right now we're just in, you know, the times in which we live and that everyone is like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Peek over my shoulder a little bit, make sure that I can say this, that, you know, people are going to you're not going to have the people with the torches behind you screaming, oh, my God, God, how can you say that? I mean, you know, we're, we're getting in an era where everybody is going to start to be a little hesitant or reticent to be able to, to just kind of let it fly. But look, for me, I mean, I, I first was on the air in Providence in 1997. It was October 20th, 97 was wow. my first show. I was 22 years old, fresh out of college. And that was my first gig in radio doing mornings. And the one thing that someone said to me in the very beginning was you're authentic. Don't change. They're like, figure out how to shape yourself because you're incredibly raw, but don't change. And that is the hardest part of all of this because There are times, you know what it is really? It's the way you used to be able to say things. It's the way you used to be able to joke around. It's the way you used to be able to kind of say stuff in a joking way where now it's like, okay, that's the way they did it in 2001, but how can we repackage this for 2021 Mm -hmm. where you don't have the whole world coming down on you? So I think for broadcasters, man, it is, we're in a real tricky time right now. I want broadcasters and comedians together because for some people, what used to be funny. Now it's like, Oh, that's distasteful. When in reality, you're probably like, Hey man, that was funny. 15 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's just a sign of the times. But I look, um, if I have a failing, it is that I am authentic and I let it fly. And you know, our greatest strength in life, Shukri is our greatest weakness. Our greatest strengths are greatest weakness. And yep. for me, my greatest strength is saying anything. That's also gotten me into a lot of trouble over the years. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you, you mentioned like you mentioned about how your your journey started in October of 97. Now, for 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 hilarious sakes, 
I was six years old in October of 97. Oh I'll be 30 in like this, this fall, this coming October. And obviously at that time, this was a whole different world altogether. Like I, I still remember those days or those formative days as, as a kid growing up in New York. And, you know, like you, you had Titans of radio, like Howard Stern on terrestrial radio. You had guys like Rush Limbaugh who just passed away. And um, pardon me. And you also had, well-known radio personalities that were just not afraid to be raw and authentic. And as you mentioned, it was a very different time. In fact, case in point, I was listening to uh, to Colin Coward's podcast uh, last week, and he did an interview with Joe Buck of Fox Sports. And he was talking about how his dad, Jack Buck, the legendary Jack Buck, baseball Hall of Fame broadcaster, pro football Hall of Fame announcer, he was saying that he would he would come, he would basically on the broadcast, he would just make a joke like, well, we, we got in late from a, from a, from a late night, um, late night game. And we got home to our wives at one. We, we finally arrive at home at 6 a.m. And we'll be getting out of bed at 9 a.m. But like for those who didn't understand that type of humor, it would be like, wait, what do you mean? But for us, it's like, <laughs> we, we, we understand what, what he meant, but Try making that kind of reference in 2021. No, no, no. No, I mean, you, you there's uh there's no F Mary Kill anymore. There's no because my God, you're advocating. <laughs> you might be advocating marriage on one end, but you're advocating <laughs> on the other. I mean, like seriously, it's just unbelievable. But yeah. to your point, yeah, yeah, it's like the whole, huh? I wonder where those five hours went. Hmm, I wonder, you know? Yeah. Well, when my when my wife went to the car and saw the clear heel shoe that was left behind, she figured out where I went. Oh my God, you can't say that anymore. How dare you mention a shoe mm -hmm. show? You know what I mean? And it's like, oh man. But but to your point, you know, you're right. And 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 it, it it's also interesting to me that in the very beginning of my career, it was AM radio, yes. right? Nine. Mm -hmm. I, even the station I started in Providence, it was AM 790 that we flipped the sports. And, mm. you know, I remember in August of August of 97, mm. we're putting the station together and then they make the announcement in September. Mm. And it was what they call music of your life, which really should be called music of the end of your life, because it was all the old people who would listen to the, but they would call, you know, yeah. where are all of the old people to go? Where yeah. do I get to listen to Bobby Denton and all this stuff? And they were like screaming, you know, believing these voicemails of I'm 82 years old and there's nowhere I can listen to Sinatra. And now I get yeah. to listen to someone talking about the Celtics and by the way, they suck. Boom. So people started to switch over and, and listen to sports talk, but it was, yeah. oh my God, where is the music of your life? And, you know, I remember that being such a big deal. And now it's like, oh, I can't even, you know, you, you, you think about the way radio um, companies are programming AM radio now. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, please, it, it's, it's like, it's been blown by in the high speed lane. It's pretty amazing when you think about that was just like, you know, 20 some odd years ago. Yeah. And, and it just goes to show you just how much like radio has revolutionized over the years. And like, for me, like I'll, I'll even add on to your point growing up in New York, 
in nine in the late nineties, all we had was WFAN. Everybody in this in, in this business knows about FAN, legendary first sports radio station in the world. For the fact of the matter, but they weren't on FM just yet. They were only on six sixty AM. They later down down the line over the years, they they went over to FM to one hundred one point nine FM, and it it amazes me when we think about different eras in in, in sports radio. You talk about the late nineties and when, when you first started for me, when I first got into sports radio, when I first started listening to sports radio, it was around the mid, mid early, mid 2000, around 2004, 2005. And I remember one of the things that stood out to me was there was a different way that shows and stations were programmed itself in terms of sports that if you compare that, if you listen to radio shows from like 2004, 2005, and you compare it with now, you could hear and you could de like detect the difference. So I'll, I'll ask you this question. What has changed? And do you think that social media and the digital age has a lot to do with that? No question. And, you know, Rick Pitino once had the line while in Boston, the fellowship of the miserable. Mm. And depending on the market, that's really what it turned into. Now, you're an East Coast guy. Yep. I'm an East Coast guy, right? Mm. You're in New York City. You got some ties to Philly. You're in Boston. Yep. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, then moved to Westerly, Rhode Island. And my first exposure to sports radio was listening to WFAN. In fact, that's where I did my internship at wow. WFAN in New York City, which is a hell of a story in and of itself. Mm. But that's where I got hooked on sports radio. But it's very, you know, doggy. That's such a great impersonation, by the way. <laughs> well, what, I, I'll tell you, when I went to go work for that guy in yeah. 09, I actually got to sit and meet with him. This is wow. no word of a lie, right? So it's yeah. September 2008. I knew I was probably going to go work there at the beginning of 09 when they put together a Mad Dog Radio, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have lunch with Dog. Now, the serious offices are right in the middle of Manhattan. I'm talking like Times Square, yep. 49th Avenue of the Americas, right? By, right. So we went to go to 54th Street to some Chinese restaurant, some like hotel or whatever. It might even be like 53rd Street, right? Mm. Now I'm a big fatso, way fatter at that time than I was now. And I got Mad Dog Russo, who's like running around. He, he's got like a motor in his ass. So I go and see him in his office. Hey, come on, I got that much. And we go downstairs and he's talking to me the whole time. And, and I'm not kidding you. He's walking so fast. I'm practically running. Wow. Like, oh. you know, like, it was almost like one of the bushwhackers in the WWE. This guy's yeah. flying around and he's telling me all this stuff. Like we sit down and I'm just, I'm almost like, Oh my God, I can't keep up with this guy. But it was, you know, but for me, as someone who in 94 and in, in college and even in high school, who was listening to Mike and Chris back then to get mm -hmm. back to your question, you know, it really became the fellowship of the miserable. And it was what we don't have. And here in Boston and even in New England, hey, I remember in Providence, the night the Red Sox finally broke the curse and won the World Series. I took phone calls all night until five o'clock in the morning on a small AM station in New England because everybody, it was the first real rejoicing moment, you know, and even though the Patriots had won some Super Bowls, the Red Sox were still it because by God, they had to break that curse. Yeah. And that thing around here changed everything. Now to your point with social media, it's instant interaction and 
you have a lot of, you know, Twitter toughs on social media. Oh, yeah. Who, oh, God. Who are willing to fire away in a way that they would never say directly to you or get through on sports radio. So mm -hmm. I think we had a real tenor and tone and change, especially in the New England and East Coast. I would say the Northeast Corridor yeah. version of sports radio got kind of nasty for a while. And I think that's sort of coming back around a little bit. And, you know, you talked about earlier in your response about the story of your internship with WFAN. Walk us through those days and the process of getting that internship and your story during your internship as as you can remember. Okay, so I played college football at the University of Rhode Island. I was a scholarship player. And I remember for the summer of 95, as I got deeper into my journalism, you know, trying to get my degree at URI, yeah. it would have been for the summer of 95. I went down to FAN. I met with Eric Spitz. I met with Mark Chernoff. And that's a relationship that exists 26 years later now. Wow. And I remember I met with them and I got the internship. And then they said, okay, here's what it entails. And I had to call them back a day later and say, guys, I just have to be really honest about this. I want this internship, but I can't do it. I don't have the money to go back and forth. I can't stay down there. I said, let me save for a year to be able to do it next year. I said, would you guys work with me in that? And they said, you do what you have to do. You're in for the summer of 96. And they said, don't worry about it because they respected I was an athlete. They respected that I drove down from, you know, Rhode Island mm -hmm. and was willing to go down there twice a week. And I just really clicked with those guys. So fast forward to the next summer. Here I am doing this internship, right? I'm almost out of school. I got, I'm working at like Pizza Hut in Westerly. You know what I mean? <sighs> Trying to break into radio. I go and do this internship and it was, it was three days a week. This is where my best friend Nelson Martinez comes in. He's a guy from Newark, New Jersey, who I met playing college football. His dad was African-American. His mom's Puerto Rican. She's probably about four foot nine. And I'm afraid of her. And, I mean, if you ever met a Puerto Rican mom, you yes. know that, mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're going to be afraid sometimes. And I remember saying to my man Nelson, I was like, I got, like, Monday night, two to seven, and I've got as it's 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. And then I have Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Then I'm going to drive back, go to work, and then I'm going to do an overnight shift Saturday into Sunday. So I'll drive down twice a week. I remember telling Nelson this and his mama overhears, and all of a sudden I got the, you ain't staying in no flea bag hotel. You go come here and stand out here every Monday night. And if you give me anything, I'm going to whoop your ass. And I'm like, okay. Like, I wasn't fighting her because I'm like, okay, what? listen, whatever you say, ma. And sure enough, I'd show up and like there'd be dinner and they were waiting for me. And I knew Nelson's sister. And so every Monday I would go to Newark, New Jersey. And I remember saying to Nelson, I'm like, see, you know, here comes the politically correct part that might get me canceled. God forbid. But I remember I said, Nelson, I was like, hey, man. I kind of stand out a little differently around here. I'm like, if we're walking around, he's like, listen, man, here's all you got to do. He's like, make your eyes real big. I'm like what? He goes, you big people going to think you crazy. He says, just be like Debo. He's just stand there and make your eyes real big. He's like, everybody looks at you. Just look at them with big eyes. He's like, I'm telling you, they'll think you're crazy and they'll stay away. And I'm like, come on, man, you're ribbing me. And he's like, I'm telling you, it's going to work. 
Sure enough, my car almost gets broken in. Nelson at three in the morning one night is standing in Spanish, standing in his underwear, yelling down in Spanish at the guys to stay away from the white car. Oh my God. I mean, like it was an under. So I learned all this radio. I got called a fat F by I miss. I was like in the way putting wow. some parts back and I remember saying to my mom I'm like mom I just called me a fat effort today she's like oh my god that's terrible I'm like nah you don't get it I'm like that's like the stamp of it's like a co- that's like a compliment are you kidding me yeah, exactly so yeah. so for me I actually waited a year and those you know Mark Chernoff and Eric Spitz both validated me by saying listen man you're willing to work hard for it and sure enough you know, by oh two or oh three, it might have been. I got to do my first filling shift at Fan in the old building over in Queens, which wow. was in the bowels of the Astoria Studios. Yeah. But you you walk by the entrance to Lifetime Television, so I'm walking by <laughs> like a standing of B. Arthur on my way to go with the WFAN. Whereas <laughs> I'm walking in, there's Steve Summers outside the door. The legendary Hello, Steve Summers, I must add for those who don't know. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. Yeah, the legendary schmoozer is standing there ripping a dart outside the door. <laughs> Great. Oh, big guy. Good to see you again. And then he puts it out and goes in 705 on the fan, you know, doing his thing. It was like surreal because you listen to these people. And then the next thing I know, there's like a Mets game on and I'm sitting in the newsroom BSing with uh, Steve Summers just about radio and the way he would put his notes together and all that stuff. I mean, it couldn't have been a better introduction into not only sports radio, but big market radio to see how intense it was. And it was the ultimate training ground for me for three months where I learned from so many great people and made connections, honestly, that I still use and have to this day. And you know, that story in itself was so it was so incredible because, as I mentioned, I grew up listening to the fan. I knew about Mike and the Mad Dog. Mike and the Mad Dog is what started sports radio. If it if their show didn't work, who knows if any of us would be working in sports radio at all, let alone if this format would even work. So here's my my personal story. My I start with the spring of 2015 because something about 2015 the year and it's helped me personally where I look at and I say that was one hell of a year like my god and I'll never forget this I mean, my memory is pretty amazing and I'm unfortunate to have a great memory a great long-term memory at that this was the end of spring semester 2015 I am maybe a couple of weeks away from from walking at graduation from from Long Island University where I went where I went to school, and I'm on my laptop, and I'm just looking see what's what's available, what's around, you know, internships stuff like that. Ninety eight point seven ESPN New York had an opening for an internship, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I'm gonna just apply. I'm like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, screw it. I tried. And I and I'll never forget. I say, you know what? Shoot, don't even think about it. Forget about it. You apply. I apply for it. Went my way. Closed my laptop. Kept on working. Kept preparing for finals. July of that summer of 2015, I'm in Coney Island, and I'll never forget this day in particular. I'm in Coney Island. I just got off the 
the train, the, the B, not the D, F, N, and Q trains. The last stop is at Stillwell Avenue, right across from the legendary Nathan's Hot Dog Spot, where every summer America turns in to watch Joey Chestnut be a fat ass and eat 67 hot dogs in 12 minutes. That's it. That, <laughs> that's it. Same spot. Same spot. I get off the train. My phone is ringing. And my phone, I see, is a Florida number. I'm like, I only know maybe one or two people in Florida. This ain't their number. So I'm like, I put my phone down. I'm walking along the, the boardwalk, taking in a hot summer day in New York City and Coney Island, and it's a madhouse. It's Friday. I mean, people are out. And then my phone goes, ain't it? And I'm like, that's weird. I'll look down. Same number. And I'm like, voicemail. I'm like, this better be good because I swear to God, if I'm getting spam calls, I'm going to chuck my phone into the freaking Atlantic Ocean. I swear, I, I kid you not. I listened yeah, to it. Yeah, if it was about a car warranty, you would have hucked that thing. Yeah, right I would have thrown it as far as I could possibly throw it into the damn New York Aquarium. That's how annoyed I was about to get. I listened to the voicemail. Hi, this is so-and-so from Disney. And I'm like, huh? Oh... Really? Yeah. They're like, hey, we want to interview you for the internship that you applied for. I was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm really interested. And this interview gets scheduled. It's a phone interview with Justin Craig. He was the program director of ESPN New York at the time. He's now the program director for ESPN Radio. And I start going into it, and my my passion starts oozing through my skin. I'm I'm talking about. The Yankees and the Mets and the Rangers, how much they were, how much of a freaking abysmal disappointment that they were having just lost game seven of the Eastern finals against Tampa Bay on home ice at MSG just, just maybe two months prior. And I'm just going on and on and on. He's like, I know, you know, stats, I know stats, but my goodness, your, your passion is just like, what in the world? And then the following month at this point, I'm like, did I get it? Did I get it? I need to know. I need to know. Like, can you please someone give me an answer for God's sakes? I reached out and they reached back out to me and they were like, listen, we actually have some news to give you. Um, they have decided that they're that they're going to hire you for or for the internship. And that blew my mind. And I was like, are you serious? They were like, no, like this is this is for real. Like, they're offering you the internship. Um, if, if you're interested and I'll never forget, I'll never forget just the feeling of excitement and that first day walking into the studios, you know, I, I meet with, uh, with, with Ryan Hurley, who is now the program director of 98.7 ESPN. And I remember just having, just being open, wide open eyed and everything. And I've just, I vividly remember you know, like meeting guys like Michael K for the first time, who who has who now has the number one afternoon uh, afternoon sports radio show, not only in New York, but in the country, in accordance to Barrett Sports Media and just, just meeting him for the first time at Don LaGreca, Peter Rosenberg and just so many people, um, like so many great people who work at that station. And it was just it was just amazing to me like how how that internship really changed my life and in the way that you talked about how the the on uh, the WFAN internship changed your life like that story in itself is something I still hold near and dear like those three months that I was the I was an intern at uh for for three months uh, at ESPN New York changed my life on on so many fronts it gave me 
um, firsthand experience and knowledge of just what goes into working at a at a major market sports radio station. And that in itself was absolutely um, amazing just to reflect on and as well as just to think of all of the, the memories and all of the experiences that went on. And interestingly enough, that time coincided with the Mets uh, run to the World Series in that, that fall of 2015. So that in itself was just like, oh, my God, like I'm living the dream right now. And like that, that in itself just really changed my life in so many ways. Well, and, and, and I know my camera is being fussy here, so I, no, no, I'm completely here with you. It just switched over from one to the other, but you know, what you mentioned was passion. Uh, And for me, that's really where, like, from, from my end, that's, that's why those, you know, spits and churn off were like, dude, you're going to, you're, you're in next year. Don't worry about it. You know? They see the passion. It begins with passion. You know, that's the whole, you know, uh, nothing in life can be accomplished without great enthusiasm. Absolutely. And it really is true. It starts there. You've got to have a genuine love because look, uh, I'm, I'm a testament to it. Like this business and we forget that it is a business. Mm-hmm. Um, this business sucks at times and it's brutal and it's hard on you. And, you know, even to your point where you were like, man, just let me know, you know, I'm in one of those spots right now. Like, I know what I'm going to do next. I'm sitting and waiting and you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm like, all right, when are we going to do this? Cause you know, you get a little itchy. Like I've worked Same. constantly for Same 24 here. years, but that's, I, I, if there's one thing that I can tell you in this business is it never happens on your timeline. Never. I'm going never, through it right never, now. Never. Oh my God, Andy, I'm going through it right, right, right now. Seriously. Like this. Oh man. I got a story to share with you post recording. I gotta, I gotta let you in on something, but you talk about this business never running on your time. And that's one of the most intricate lessons that I've had to learn in my journey so far is that none of this happens when you want it to happen. And I think patience is so key. And you talked about your, doing your 24 years um, in, in, in this industry and how important patience is Give the listener an example of a time where you weren't sure as to how this was all going to come together and and how you were able to manage having patience during that time and that that era of which you waited. You know, it's interesting because um, like for me, I was prodigy is way the wrong word, mm-hmm. but I remember doing my internship at WFAN. And they were like, you'll be lucky to get a weekend show by the time you're like 30, 31. It's just the way it is. And you work behind the scenes, blah, blah, blah. I was on air at 22 years old. So even in Providence, for me, it was, I was getting reps. And I remember what my day was when I worked in, in Providence. I'm in at four in the morning. I would do the morning show until 10. I'd run the board until noon. And then whatever else needed to be done, I was there to do it. And um, my first episode of realizing patience was in that job. Mm. So the very first 
So I got moved over from working behind the scenes on WPRO into 790 The Score. And I was making a whopping 15 grand working 50 hours a week as an overnight board up on PRO. And they were like, well, let's just slide you over. And after three months in, I was like, yes, I'm going to get a raise. Here we go. Ba, ba, ba. Station wouldn't make any money. I didn't know the general. Like the one thing I try to tell people getting into radio is try to understand the corporate structure a little bit because it'll help you along the way. I was 23. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get. I got a 3% raise mm. for anybody who could do math 3% to 15,000 to 600 bucks. Yeah. So whenever there were appearances, I go to the opening of a zipper for $200. Are you kidding me? I mean, forget <laughs> about going down to the local grocery store to stand in the bakery department for two hours and, you know, push honey buns or whatever the hell they'd be pushing that day. Mm. It would be like, I would just, I would go to whatever appearances I could to make extra money. So for me, it was the early years of realizing that it's going to take a while. And it did, especially in a market like Providence. And then I got to a point to where I sort of, I don't want to say I forced hand, but there was interest. And, you know, I ended up getting a contract. And then next thing I know, I get a call from a major market and I'm locked in a contract and I can't get out. Mm. And I offered the money. I tried every way I could to get fired. Like the, there's the line in Seinfeld of Costanza, you know, where he put his feet in the top of the Dairy Queen machine to get fired and stuff like that. Oh, I, I, I'll take a dump on your desk. I ripped people on the air. I froze people out wow. for two weeks. I did everything I could to try to get fired out of that job because it would have let me go to a big market. And they were like, Nope, we're not firing you. You could do whatever. And Lord knows I tested them on how far they were, you know, willing to go to keep <laughs> because I was kind of pressing the issue a little bit. Mm. And it, it, it makes you realize that timing is a big part of this business and that patience is as well. And for me, that station in Providence went under. And shoot, the one thing I can tell you is the people at ESPN Radio, who I did work with in 07, 08 and stuff like that, they knew I was being let go. So the day I got let go in Providence, I went to go do national fill-in when Doug Gottlieb was there. Yeah. I went to go do the national fill-in that night and they hand me a 150 day contract and they say, here's your, here's, we want you for the rest of the year. So for me, a lot of things would fall into place along the way, but the lessons that I learned in terms of patience were the hard ones early, just because you have the job doesn't mean they're going to turn around and pay you a bunch of money. You've got to prove it. You've got to earn it. You've got to put in your time. And that requires a level of patience that a lot of people will do this for three or four years and say, you know, F it, I'm not making any money. Let me go work in another industry. That's the weeding out process of people in this business. If mm. you can make it to the point to where you can get by, then you're probably going to thrive because most of the people before that say to hell with this and they get out of Dodge. And I think that that in itself is so important because one of the things that I'm learning in my journey now is patience, 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 timing is everything. And you know what's interesting? Like in the four years that I've been living here in Boston, I've gone through an awful lot. Now, for those that, don't, that may not know my story, and I'll, and I'll share my story with you. I moved to Boston in February 2017 because um, like, I wanted to have an opportunity to start my, my radio broadcasting career. And the one of the things that I'll never forget, and this is very, 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 very early on. 
about five years prior, less than five years prior, my father gave me advice that I did not know how much it was going to impact me, but as well as it would turn out to be, if you will, a prophetic advice. He said, you know, after college, you, you may have to leave New York. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, listen, because you have no experience. You may have to leave New York. You may have to go elsewhere just to get your feet wet and, and eventually get your feet in the door. Now, this was April 2012. This is like almost nine years ago. I would have never, and I mean never imagined at that time that Boston would be that city. Never in a million years. So I moved to Boston in 2017. I'm thinking, okay, I'm here I am. Let's let's make this happen. When I tell you I knew next to nothing, I knew next to nothing. I I knew with the exception of the people who I, I worked with when I was an intern at 9870 SP in New York, I knew next to nobody in this city in terms of the industry, in terms of either station EEI or or 985 the sports hub. I for two years, when I tell you, I basically worked jobs just to survive. I did that for two years and I hated it. And I really knew what I wanted to do, but because I didn't know how to go about doing it, that was the real litmus test of life, if you will. And this is probably the only time where I'll be, I share something really serious because this was, this is life we're talking about. And the thing that I remember most, the turning point for me was April of 2019. Bruins had just started their Stanley Cup playoff run. They would eventually go to game seven of the finals against the St. Louis Blues. I'm on my way back to Boston from New Hampshire for the day. Um, and I was dating dating a woman at the time. We were having a conversation in the, in, the, in the car. And I said that, you know, like, I'm really angry. I'm not happy with where I am in my life. And conversation went south, but there was something that was said that really stood out. And, and she was like, you know, you make you you're better off, sir. You're better off like reaching out to people who are actually in the industry and see what could like see like how could you begin to work your way as a, as a, as a radio broadcaster. And I said, you know, I'm going to do that. I so I go on Twitter the next day. It was a, it was a Sunday. I remember I that that Saturday evening it was during Game Two, Bruins Leafs. I'm on my laptop reaching out to people trying to reach out. There's one man in particular that that responds. And when I tell you that this man and I really give this man a tremendous amount of credit. And I mean that sincerely. And this man is Bob Sosie, the radio play by play voice of the New England Patriots for for the sports up. He responds. He's like, hey, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to take time out to, to talk to you, uh, to, to share with you my story. And in more ways, I understand exactly how you're feeling. I'll never forget it. We had a 45 minute phone conversation and that was the start of our friendship. And in, in, in many ways, I say, I say, no, that man is my mentor because in more, in more ways than one, that man actually helped change my life. And one of the things that he taught me along the way is patience. Cause he told me about the times when he used to call Navy games on, on radio. This is before mm -hmm. he got the, the job with I'm um, calling Patriots game for the sports up. And he was saying that he, he got angry one day and, 
and he just lashed out, like, "Why am I not working in the big league?" Sort of on quote unquote, and and like when I, when I'm listening to his and tell a, tell a story, I say, you know, wow, there's similarities to what I was dealing with and so forth. And I remember one of the things that he told me was like, "Listen, what you should do, look around the Boston area, different radio stations. Doesn't matter if it's college. And I'll even put I'll even put this out there because I'm I'm." damn proud of, of of my journey thus far and it's led me to being a national syndicated radio host currently right now and say even if it's re- college radio look around get on the air and get reps you mentioned reps and mm-hmm. when i tell you 91.5 wmfo was the first station to give me that opportunity to become a radio broadcaster that in itself is is what is where it all started but it was just the beginning i thought that would be that would be the big tilting point until that was just step one. Step two was taking a leap of faith, which I did in December of 2019, because at that point I was working um, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, um, you know, like as a materials transport. And I remember I was at that point where I was I was pissed off because it was like I'm working my tail off. I'm not doing what I love and I'm stressed out and. When people in my corner, like my mom and my, my my brother and my best friends are seeing it, it was like, yeah, I need to make a change. I'm going to have to trust that I'm going to make this leap of faith and jump and really go head on into it. Now, when I tell you, it started the following month, January of last year, where I really just said, you know what, I'm going to invest all of my time into radio, regardless of whatever, whatever that's open, I'm going to try, but I'm going to, I'm going to just do what I do, what I can with what I know. So what I ended up doing was that I ended up getting up at 3, 3.30, 3.45 in the morning, just to do 6am shows, like do from 6 to 8 or 6 to 9, and so forth. So when you talk about patience and perseverance, this is it. Like I remember it was just a year ago at this time I was doing that, getting up at 3.45 in the morning, do 6 a.m. shows. And and, and you know what's funny, Andy? When people tell me and would tell me, shoot, how are you getting up this early? You're crazy. Like, like I'm still sleeping at that time. My answer to them is this. And I and I and I and I want your feedback. You gotta have a motor or an engine that fuels you, that it don't matter what time of morning that it is, it, when you know your why. Your ass is going to get up and you're going to go and get it because that is what you believe in. To your to your point, I go back to my internship. I was finishing school. I did have an extra year of eligibility, but I kind of ripped up my hamstrings before the 96 season, in part because I was driving back and forth to New York City two days a week and not working out because I was investing in radio. And um the that is the hardest part of all of this is not only being patient but continuing to grind while doing so look everybody can have a podcast now everybody can, right and and but it doesn't mean a you're getting better or that you're going to be heard or anything like that it's the connections i hell i've already referenced 26 years ago was the first time mulleted me completely unrefined walked into an office of businessmen in New York city and found a way to get an internship sight unseen, no radio experience. I was a hardworking athlete and 
when you're an athlete, I think people will give you the benefit of the doubt because they know you work hard. And that's what was given to me. But to your point, it isn't easy. You know, I had uh, in 2005, I had an opportunity to go to a major market. I'm talking big time. It was where I wanted to be and I couldn't go. And I felt like it was the low point of my life. And yet when that got blown up, that was the year that I joined the Patriots radio network full time. So I'm 29 years old. I'm a non NFLer breaking down NFL on a pregame postgame and halftime show. So I was devastated that I couldn't go to market number one. And I had assholes in the, sorry, I had people in the way <laughs> who were blocking it, who I still loathe to this day, but it still worked out for me. And I still took a step forward and I have to, you know, the, the wound is caused by someone else. The healing is your responsibility. Absolutely. And for me, I was wounded, but I found a way to heal for you. You're still trying to get there. You're on the climb. Everybody's path is different. You know, I was very fortunate in that, that my internship in New York city opened the door for me to go work behind the scenes at ESPN radio uh, network. So in September of 96 through basically like July of 97, right before the score started, Mm -hmm. I was doing stuff at ESPN. And in fact, I got fired for the first time when I took the job in Providence. So this just goes to show you how some people think in radio Mm -hmm. I'd committed. I told the program director then at ESPN radio, look, I know I'm committed for you next weekend, but I'm having a meeting. I think they're going to put me on the air. There's a lot of grunt work to do. They're all good luck. Great. I get the thing. They tell me, okay, but we need you to start like now. We have a ton of production work to do. We need you to unplug. I call the guy from ESPN and he says, "Um, if you're not here this weekend, you're fired and hung up, hung up on me. And I'm like, God dang, like I bust it. Right. So sure enough, I called him on a Thursday and I'm like, yo, I have to do this. And he's like, don't worry. You're replaced anyway. And hung up the phone. I didn't talk to the guy for five plus years. I had to be resolute in the decision and not worrying. Did I just burn a bridge, but I'm beginning my career now, as it turns out, I have reconnected with the guy. He's been like, okay, you were right. I was a dick and all that stuff. But you, this business is weird, man. And you don't know how people are going to react. And it's just a, you know, everyone's path is different, but you've stuck with it. Like you've gotten through what I call some of the grind stage. Like you have figured out how to not be broke. You figured out how to scratch your itch, so to speak. You figured out how to get better. You're making connections with people in the business. Like I know in your mind, it's like, well, God dang, how come I'm not here there? You're taking the right steps to get to where you need to be, but everybody's path is different. And I was very fortunate that I was a good networker. I knew a lot of people, you know, I knew that whenever I got let go in Providence, ESPN was waiting for me. Sirius had called me two weeks later because they had asked me to do some stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm under contract in Providence. And the guy, Steve Cohen, who runs Sirius Sports, I'm in the parking lot at ESPN a month after I got let go in Providence. He calls me and goes, how's that contract working for you? I said, I don't know. When are you going to give me one? He's like, well, that's why I'm calling. 
And the next thing you know, and now Cohen, I had met as an intern in 96, but he was working at fan and doing sports foam. Now he's the big wig at Sirius XM. You know what I mean? So yeah. this business is so weird and it really is about patience and connections and timing. And it's um, some people are lucky they're athletes and they fall into it. You know, one of my great friends, Scott Zolak, I tell people all the time, the reason he got a jump start into the business is because he made the goddamn NFL. Yeah. And there are going to be those people that get to skip the line because they have put in a different level of work that gives them credibility to get put into this business, whether they should be or not. Then it's up to them to sink or swim. It's like being drafted. You can be drafted to a team, but if you suck, you're gone in three years, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same thing in radio, but it's, you know, everyone's path is different. And the grind in this business is very real. And shoot, the problem is, the problem is, is that for some podcasts are the only way to go. They're the only way to get heard. You got to talk to yourself into a computer for months, if not years before you have enough to be able to send to someone and say, Hey, I'm good enough to be put on the air. There's no training ground anymore. Mm -hmm. There's no mom and pop stations anymore. Really. It's much more difficult to break into the business. And that's why the connections matter even more. Absolutely. And, you know, like if, if I don't have people like Bob Sosi in particular, who's my mentor or Dave Sims, who another guy on um, who I have oh, I'm very, people, yeah. you got you got good people in your like Bob is salt of the earth and Dave Sims. Yeah. God, Dave Sims was an original at fan. And is still doing it mm. out Seattle. Crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. Like if, if not for those two men in particular, like I'm not sure if I am even like going where I'm going or even let alone doing what I'm doing. That's just being honest. And one of the things that I've had to learn is that it you will get rejected. And I'm going to put this out there and, and mm -hmm. I, I want to share this with you. Now, last summer was a mixture of two of two tales, two, two stories, if you will. It was a story of I'm happy to be back on the air, although from home, pre-recorded, don't care, don't give a damn. It's about getting the reps. While the other part of it was, yo, I really want to work in this industry full time. And I'm not going to stop until I get there. And even when I get there, it's just step one. It's step one of X amount of steps until wherever, whatever goal I got in mind, I'm going to get there. True story. 97 won the ticket in Detroit had an opening. And I applied. And I, you know, put together my my, my demo, my, my on-air check, sent it to, to Jimmy Powers. And he contacted me. He said, hey, heard your tape. Like, I'd like to interview you for the full-time role. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. It turns out that that, that role was to co-host the afternoon show with Mike Valenti on 97 Wonder Ticket. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, man, this would be amazing. Absolutely. Interviewed. And it turned out. I didn't get the job. I was like, oh, man. But you know what? He knows who you are now. You interviewed with him. Don't stop sending him on air checks. Just keep reaching out. See what's available. No problem. About, about a month and a half later, something opens up with 95-7 the game in San Francisco. I hear from the, I hear from the program director. Uh, with whom I still I have a really good relationship, Matt Nahegan. And he said, Hey, I wanna I wanna interview you for this full-time opportunity. Great. 
interview went well. He asked me if I was also interested in the part-time in the part-time position, but I was like, no, I'm not, but I'm, I'm interested in full-time. And I realized crazy me and now having the wisdom, I should have said, you know what? I'm willing to do part-time if that's going to lead me to be doing something full-time because that, that could have been the entryway into the door, but I was so fixated on, no, it's got to be full-time. It's got to be full-time that, I didn't have that hindsight. So when so when it so when it happened, so when I didn't get the job, it was like, okay, now here I am. I'm gonna keep grinding, I'm gonna keep working at it, keep chipping away somehow, some way. And when I tell you that ultimately one of the things that ended up happening was that I said, there's gotta be a larger platform for me out there that I can do my radio show on, not just only locally in Boston not just podcasts. And I didn't know where to go, where to turn or anything like that. But for me, the biggest thing was the importance of having those connections and those people that you could reach out to and have candid conversations as where for, for many people that it'll be like, oh, you're talking to this, this, this guy who's a, who's a voice of this team and so forth or, or this network. While for me, it's like, no, no. Like this is someone who is at an advanced stage in their career who I'm fortunate to have a personal relationship with. Now you talked about earlier in, in this, in this recording about Mark Chernoff, who recently announced that he's going to be retiring from FAN. Now Mark Chernoff, for those who don't know who's going to be listening to this podcast is I would say, and this is not to kiss ass or anything like that at all. This is, this is maybe one of the top two or three men in this industry in terms of program directors and executives and so forth. And you talked about your relationship with Mark Chernoff. How has that influenced you and impacted you in your career and uh, moving, moving forward from that internship? You know, it's funny because um, I worked my, like my first job, I was outside of CBS radio, mm-hmm. but um, because I had interned through Chernoff at CBS, I knew that eventually a lot like you, I was in the quote unquote pipeline. I was a known name. I was, you know, at least they could say, yeah, this guy did this. Bah, bah, bah. Uh, so for me, it was, uh, it, it was almost like I would keep coming back to him in a lot of weird ways. You know, when I got the offer, you know, now 16 years ago to be able to go to New York, he was a part of that. When I got on the Patriots radio network in a weird way, without going too deep into the story, he was a part of that, although it wasn't necessarily in a good way, you know? Mm. So it's funny, but there's, uh, you know, when I got, um, when the whole thing in Boston happened, he was one of the first people that I talked to because they were making sure that they were going to keep me within the company at the time. And so I I do think that there's a, that validation of someone like that, who I can say, do you know, Matt Nahegan? He could say, yes, let me put in the word for you. You know, when you get to that point with those people and you, it's the whole, Hey, do you know this person? Sure. I'd be more than willing to put in the word for you. It's kind of like that. I've always known that I can call him. And I know he's going to pick up the phone. And I, he also knows that if he's got a shift open, whether it's on fan or CBS or whatever, and he puts me in there, I'm not going to soil myself, even on fan. You know, he could throw me into New York and he knows that I can swim 
and it's not going to be terrible and he doesn't have to put someone on that maybe he doesn't necessarily want to. So I do think it is a bit of a two-way street, but I think, Shu, it's the, the validation of someone like that. And then when I worked at, at, at ESPN, and for a little bit of time there was Bruce Gilbert, but there was Scott Masteller. Mm. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of really good people put their stamp of approval on me to where it opened doors for me, but it's still up to me to get it done. And, and, and luckily those people know me enough to say, okay, here's what you need to know about the guy <laughs> because <laughs> and look, I'm not, I, I'm here's the thing, you know, there's, you can't worry about, you, you can't worry about the perception I have to worry about the reality and that is what I do when I get in there. How well do I know the business? I've been very fortunate to for the last five years, believe it or not, that once Boston went away and I'll tell the whole dirty details of that story at some point down the road, Mm. because there's a lot there and it was very dirty. Um, I had a lot of people a in my corner and B it was the whole, I didn't cause the wound, but I'm responsible for the healing. Yeah. I had to learn to go from doing a sports talk show on a sports station to doing a sports talk show on a general talk station. Mm. And then it was kind of the same thing at PRO where it was, you know, when I went to Providence, but I had my own little world. I wasn't in afternoon drive like I was in Hartford. And even then I learned about the business in that in Hartford, they had an issue with the previous afternoon host who was a former governor and got wrapped up in a scandal and blah, blah, blah. They needed to move far away from politics. Mm-hmm. I happened to be available. They had a sports guy there. It was like, all right, let's bring this dumb dumb in. And there you go. It was mm-hmm. kind of a placeholder for me to eventually get to where I got to, yeah. which was really the end game was kind of, all right, let's get them on the network and CBS sports radio and there were offers there and it just didn't work out. I chose Providence, but you know, it, but for them as a station, it was, all right, let's get far away from this. And we know that we'll eventually go back to it. So it worked out for me. It worked out for them. You don't necessarily see it at the time, but I had to go in and embrace that job. If yeah. I went in there like a schnook and was like, Oh, I'm miserable, but no, no, no. I had to go in, but I learned to do things a different way. I learned sales. I learned what it's like to do sports on a non-sports station it made me better. And that's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you're doing a podcast. It doesn't matter whether you're on radio Pacifica. It doesn't matter whether you get a crack on Christmas night with no one to talk to mm-hmm. on CBS sports radio, but by God, you're doing four hours talking to yourself. You better be ready to do it. <laughs> Opportunity comes in weird ways. And sometimes you have to learn how to grow yourself out of situations that you're put in. And without the guidance of a guy like Chernoff through some of those and the opportunities and the doors that he did kind of open for me, I I never would have been able to grow to get to the point to where I am in the business to where I now for the first time really feel like I understand it conceptually from top to bottom. I get corporate structure. I get what they're looking for. I kind of understand what program directors are under and For me, whatever it is, I have to say, this is my day part. I have to do it my way, make my gains, get, get, you know, figure out how to do it within the context of a radio station. But to see the radio world globally, so to speak, Mm. it wouldn't have happened without guys like Chernoff. And I think there's a lot to be said when you talk about guys like Chernoff who 
not only pave the way, but open, open doors for you. And as well as, you know, being able to understand like, like the, 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 the market manager, the program director, and all of these, all of these individuals who, who have various different roles and facets within a company like intercom or radio.com or even iHeartMedia and so forth. So I'll ask you for someone who may not know fully or understand like the, some of the expectations or the day-to-day dealing with, with, with these top-notch executives, what are, what are some of the, the works or workings that they're constantly under in order to make sure that that not only that they're generating um, like revenue, cause it is a business at the end of the day, but as well as making sure that that, that their top talent is generating high revenue and high ratings as well. You have to figure out how to fit into their day. So um, some program directors, they're only worried about one station and it's much easier to get their time and their attention. Mm-hmm. But now the business has gone the way of, well, you know, for example, like Chernoff. Yeah, he runs fam, but he's also the kind of he's like the format captain for all these other stations. Yeah. So you've got a program director in, you know, Milwaukee or whatever, who's calling Chernoff to get advice. So that means that maybe when I'm done doing a show, I can't just walk into his office and plunk down for 10 minutes and, and sort of shoot it with him. So you got to understand how you can fit into that person's day. And hopefully they give you expectations. And unfortunately, a lot in radio, it's the, well, just go get ratings. Yeah, well, great. Well, I I was number one in the market in Boston for most of 2014 and a big football run uh, at the end of 14 into 15. Mm. And it didn't matter a pile of crap because I was cross with somebody who ended up getting some power and it didn't matter. You know, I'm the, I, I always joke around. I'm the only guy who didn't get renewed with like a 14 share. So when people say, well, your job oh, is to just get ratings. Eh, it isn't, it really is. It, it is, it is at the end of the day, but if someone with some power doesn't like you, it doesn't matter. You know, you're going to be toast regardless because you're either cross with the wrong person or sometimes in my instance, I'd say what's on my mind. And sometimes people, you know, in those tired positions don't want to hear that kind of stuff. So it's you, you hope you get your expectations explained to you. You hope you have the respect of the person that you're working with. And normally it comes down to, does this person come in and work hard? Do they get results? Mm-hmm. Are they amenable to work with? Um, and I've always thought that of me, one person didn't, but I learned from it. And now, you know, for me, it's put me in a better spot to where now at 46 years old and having done this almost every day, the Malcolm Gladwell theory, yeah, 10,000 hours to be an expert. Mm-hmm. I crossed that at 34 years old <laughs> from just working every day and doing shows. I mean, shoot, seriously, during football season, even now, I'm seven days a week. I'm doing five days of radio. I'm doing the Sunday night show on CBS. I'm doing UMass football. I'm doing TV locally around the Patriots and stuff. So, you know, when people say, you know, oh, eventually you make it. Mm, okay, you do. Well, what you do is you double down and you work hard and you work harder and you say, oh, my God, 10 years ago, I'd kill for this opportunity. Why would I pass it up now? So it's funny how sort of life changes, how everything changes. But it's... 
you know, I mean, for me, I worked with the wrong guy who got some power and wanted to stick it to some people politically as well. And, Mm. you know, I got caught up in the crossfire. So instead of being in the middle of a 10 year run with one of my great friends in Boston radio, Mm. I had to kind of go my own way. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay by myself. I really am. Like I'm okay. I, I love my family and I need them obviously. But when it comes to the professional end of this, you know, I can figure it out. I have done something different. I have a level of experience that very few people have because of where I've worked, who I've worked for and the stations that I've worked for. I've seen it outside of the sports context yeah. and how sports, fits into the radio world other than being on a monolith sports radio station absolutely in fact i want to talk about boston because in more ways than one you talked about your your experience with with, with wpro which which i want to get to in, in just a bit but let's talk about 985 the sports hub it started in 2009 the station and you came along or in 2010 correct Correct. Yep. In 2010. And during that time in which, I mean, EEI was the only station in town. Mm-hmm. And for, for for reasons that I don't know, maybe it's because I just don't know. I don't have the knowledge or the understanding. EEI didn't take the sports hub, I guess, seriously in, 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 in that regard. Now, when the Bruins made their run for the Stanley Cup in 2011, and I asked, da- I asked DA this question on the last episode. What ultimately changed in terms of how 985 Sports Hub was perceived and how much of a role did your midday show play in the rise of 985 Sports Hub in Boston? Yeah, look, I think we were kind of the last to come along because there was a change. It was Gary and Zoe, and then it became me and Zoe. And Gary and I went through that, and you talk about a wonderful human being. That's Gary Tangway. Yeah. But even he would admit that he was burning the candle on both ends. He was doing Celtics. He was doing this. It was it was a lot for him, and he and I had a lot of discussions um, painful ones at times around that time because it was icky because we're such good friends. We were still doing stuff on the Patriots and they put me in there and him, not all that stuff. But, you know, TNR were really the guys that I thought were changing the, the, the feel and the thought of that radio station because they were the ones that were the big question, but they worked hard. They did it differently. They made it fun. That was the big thing. She was that. TNR came along and they made it fun to listen. They made it fun to be a part of it. No, they couldn't break down the zone dog blitz the way Zoe and I could, but those guys found different ways to do things and take advantage of people in different ways. You know, who would have thought to stick a microphone in front of a drunk Bruins fan? It became one of the funniest things oh, ever. Oh yeah, what Adolfo, that's right. That's right. So when the Bruins got hot, there were Bruins fans who were like, you know, oh, dude, my friend Chucky got plasted at the game. And <laughs> fuck the microphone in front of his face. I got to tune in at 8.05 to hear that. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you got all the friends gathered around the radio, and they're listening, and they're making fun of old Chucky because he got hammered at the game and all that. It became fun. And honestly, the other thing was the Bruins fans were underserved in terms of talk radio. And the other station basically said to them, you don't matter. 
So when the Bruins mattered, we welcomed the fans like they mattered. And when you shut people out for five years or more, and you say, you don't matter, you don't matter, you don't matter. Oh yeah, by the way, the team's really good. You matter now, but you've told them they don't matter. And we're like, come on in. Everybody's welcome. Let's go. That really swung the tide the other way. And that's when everything started to rise. That's when people really started to gravitate to the sports hub. And, you know, Fred and Rich are among the best radio people I've ever been around because they did it differently. They figured out how to adapt. Um, and the Bruins rise was a big part of that. And, you know, the Patriots are always tied into that station. And with Zoe and I both doing what we were doing for the Patriots at the time, he eventually became the color analyst. He was a sideline guy for a while. I always felt like we had football on lock. I always felt like with me and Zoe, no one could touch us talking football. If we wanted to get intricate, we could. If we wanted to talk about the draft or free agency, we could. Because a lot of people look at the draft and it's like three years later, how come you didn't pick that guy? Well, you're a bigger <laughs> idiot than them for positioning it that way. And I eviscerate people who say that kind of stuff. But in all seriousness, I don't think it was necessarily one show at the hub that caused the rise. Yeah. I think it was people were ready for something different. I think, yes, there was an underestimation as to what, what was kind of going on. And I think, you know, TNR really set the tone. You know, you had a good afternoon show with someone who was established. They eventually got middays right. Because the one thing you can't deny with me and Zoe is that we can sit in a car, we could sit in a room, or we could be on Zoom. And the chemistry with us just picks up right where we left off. In a way, it's kind of long lost brotherish. Yeah. So I think when that changed at the hub and people could hear how genuine it was between us, that worked and it fit in to kind of what was already building and growing there. And it just took off when the Bruins won the cup. And just listening to, to you share a story about like just that kind of chemistry, because the biggest thing for me is. I want to be able to establish that kind of chemistry in which that we're just having a conversation. This is not even as, as much of an, of an interview as some may think like, no, this is just a conversation. Like, you know, like I've never had a co-host so far and I don't know, maybe Monday that'll change. Maybe, maybe I'll continue to be able to, you know, like be solo. I, I don't know. But I think the biggest thing in terms of philosophy that I have is, I want to be able to make you comfortable. I want to make you feel as if that you are the centerpiece of what I'm talking about, what we're talking about. And, and when you have that in, in sports radio, it's, it's such a massive blessing. And the first people that I think about Mike and the mad dog, I'm, I can go on YouTube and just watch and listen to old clips from from way back when it could be from 1996 when they were covering the, the 96 World Series between the Yankees and Braves. And or I could go back to uh, the Chuck Knobloch uh, de debacle in game two of the 98 ALCS, them gripping Knobloch to pieces and just be like, oh, my God, I you could feel and hear the the chemistry. So the one thing I'll ask you is. How would you best categorize and describe the relationship that you and Zoe had when you were at the Sports Hub? And how would you best categorize it to this day? 
Uh, it's great. And, and we don't talk maybe as much anymore. Uh, because look, when I left, it was because of the program director and the program director was uh, those people were left behind working for that guy. Um, so it, it got icky for a while because a lot of people were like, Hey man, that sucks for you, but I got to work with this guy. So, um, and I had to go do my own thing. You know, like I had to, I was driving to Hartford 90 miles one way after being the business for almost 20 years, you know, just to go to work. So, uh, there were some who didn't know what to say, but in terms of Zoe and I, look, we met at Comcast Sportsnet in Boston, the old Fox Sports New England. Yeah. We met there in 02, and he was just kind of coming out of football. Now, we're both Western Pennsylvania guys, so we're Yinzers, and we connected right away. And I was like, what are you doing now? And he was like, I don't know. I got to figure it out. Um, go to 2004, maybe it was, mm. maybe five. And Zoe's working in Providence in part because I went to the program director and said, listen, if you want to, you got to talk to this guy. Like I'd, I'd met Zoe and I went to the old PD, David Bernstein back at, at, at PRO, who was running both stations. I'm like, yo, you got to talk to this guy. Sure enough, he got hired. Then the next thing I know, they put us together and he, and he's openly talked about this. You know, he taught me to read defense and I taught him radio. And he learned what to do. Now we worked in Providence. You got to remember for three years. I mean, we knew, we knew we were doing the last show on the score and that we were getting fired right afterwards. So this is so radio. So at the score, they were going to let us go on a Friday. They ended up letting us go on a Monday because they had booked and I think the Rhode Island Interscholastic League had paid yeah. for putting their high school games on the air that weekend. So they left the sports format on for the weekend. Let us do a show and then let us go Monday at noon. So the check would clear from the Rhode Island Interscholastic League. And then they did what they were going to do. It's crazy. Yeah. But I yeah. got tipped off and we knew we were going to be let go. And we knew we, we did the most boring show we ever did together. Cause someone said, <laughs> dude, don't do like, don't say anything stupid on your last day because they'll find a way to not pay you out. And we were like, we, we joke, we've joked about it to this day about how it was just boring radio and we mailed it in because, and then sure enough, it was coming to the office and here you go. And we both ended up going our separate ways, but ultimately people knew we had chemistry. Like even during the Patriots radio network, you could listen and know it's like, okay, those two guys, they, 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 they've got something. They, get it. So it wasn't like we'd ever worked with each other again, but you know, he was doing stuff at CBS sports network while I'm doing stuff at ESPN and we're driving home at two o'clock in the morning after I get off ESPN and he's driving in from New York city after doing CBS sports network back in, in the day. Mm -hmm. And we're still talking and communicating and then boom, they put us together and it was like putting on a comfortable shoe. We just know it. And we knew that we were going to be okay here, but there was a lot that he needed to learn. And the one thing that I give him worlds of credit for, he never looked at this business like an athlete. He never walked in and was like, I'm so-and-so. So this is how I get to act. He wanted to know why you did certain things. He wanted to, he wanted it explained to him. 
And in Providence, we had a couple of janky like program directors towards the end who, you know, you could put what they know about radio in a thimble. <laughs> I was the one who was really sitting with Zoe every day and explaining, here's why you do this. Here's why you do that. And we would talk about the actual business itself. And um, he helped me grow as a person. Uh, I went through some tough personal times, you know, and I would call him and either talk about it or his wife would pick up the phone. You know, I joke about Amy. I call her big mama because I always joke that she's the one with the real money. And mm. I'm kind of half kidding on that. But, you know, there were times where she'd pick up the phone and just be like, how are you doing? You know, and when I was in New York City in 09 and kind of, you know, I got my divorce and next thing I know, I'm single in New York City and I'm on television every night on SNY and doing national radio. And it's like, oh, my God, a whole new world. And, you know, I went and had my fun. Like, they wanted to hear the stories of what I was doing. And um, he's just, regardless of what I do in this business, um, I would never, like, I would never poke at him in a truly negative way. If I if I bust on him because there are times where he's stammering or going, dude, they're show ponies, or it sounds like he's smoking <laughs> It's because I'm busting his chops because I know him. He is among the few people that I would never cross or jab at. Like he's a real friend to me. And I got to know his family and his dad passed away recently. Yeah. And big Paul was a great man, you know, and he was, even when I got let go in Providence, I'll never forget this. When the whole Providence thing went down and I talked to Zoe about it and we, once it was done, Big Paul reached out to me and he was like, Hey, not for nothing. And, and I don't want to, you know, get into what he said, but it, it meant the world that he reached out and he saw the effect that, that, that I had on Scott, the way he did on me. Yeah. And I just like, he doesn't, he doesn't call me Andy. I don't call him Scott. It's zone Gresh. And we've always been, but he's, he's a wonderful guy. And it just clicked. It just happened. And I've never had that with anybody else that I've worked with, but he also gave himself up to me, so to speak. And it was show me the way. And I think it's kind of, of worked out for any, everybody. He's, he is a wonderful person at times misunderstood. And um, regardless of what I do, uh, I would never say anything malicious about him because he really is someone that I would consider a true friend. And, I, and those two friends are, are very hard to come by and, and that in itself is, is a blessing and I, I appreciate you sharing that um, like with me and one of the things that and, and by the yeah. way Shu there's plenty of trash in this business there's plenty of people who if I never see again I will be happy like that's the thing is that yeah. you'll realize in this business that there are a lot of people that that you just hope to God you either never have to deal with and, and, and this is a, everybody wants top spots. Everybody wants to get where everybody, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, if I could just put it a lot of shitty people in this business. And mm -hmm. when you find the good ones and the people yeah. who are willing to help, willing to disseminate knowledge, willing to be honest with you, those are the people that you really have to hold on to because I'm a believer in this business. Mm -hmm. You make a lot of acquaintances who you mm -hmm. are friendly with. But if you cross over to being friends, and that's what I have with Zoe. 
and that and that's something I'm I'm learning now, and and I'll I'll learn especially further along as I as I go. And the one thing I'll I'll ask you is, if you had, if you have a choice between being a former athlete and being on radio or being a former athlete and being on television, which medium would you pick and why? I love radio. I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) However, I would pick TV uh, because at this point in my career, it pays more and you work less. If that now makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a terrible way of looking at it. I understand, but it it pays better and you work less. And, you know, in radio, you can elongate a little bit. You can make your point in television. You have to say in 10, what you would say in 20. Mm. So whatever you'd say in 20 seconds, shrink it down, say it in 10. It's a different, it's a different style of broadcasting, but let's just be real about it. Right. I mean, You know, if if I could be the guy who would go in and do the six thirty and the ten o'clock like they used to, well, you know, back in the day with Tangway and, and all those guys, mm-hmm. yes, I would choose to be that because it's a little less politicky. It is uh, it's easier on you. It's easier to come up with opinions that you can sort of shrink down and really hone in on the point to drive it home on TV. Whereas in radio, you got to have a better depth of knowledge because it's a bigger discussion. Um, But my my love is radio. What you're seeing here in the Zoom where I'm in my little hovel and I've got like this is my fortress of solitude. And every Sunday night I get to talk on CBS Sports Radio. And I love doing that because I'm comfortable being a solo host. If you I'm a big believer in this shoe and this is something that could work for you down the road. Solo hosts in a way are where it's at because if you have one person who has the ability to captivate the people Right. And it's one person that can do it. And you understand how to use your voice and how to keep people captivated and how to advance conversation. You can do it a little bit through phone calls. You can do it through social media. I'm comfortable doing it because I've done this for 25 years or so or almost 25 years. Mm. Plus, solo hosts can adapt to working with people. Now, if you're someone who needs someone to work with you, then that's a little different because you could throw me in the in the deep end for four hours and I'll survive. There are a lot of people that I'm, I believe in this business that if you threw them in for four straight hours, they would sink like a stone because wow. it's the whole different psychology of doing a show with someone and the habits that you get into and things like that. Mm-hmm. For me, it's easier to go from being a solo host to working with someone than it is to take someone who's used to working with a partner for 20 years and saying, go to a solo show by yourself for four hours. A lot of people wouldn't be able to, to kind of adapt to that. But that said, man, TV is so much easier. And it forces you to try not to be such a fat ass. That's <laughs> and and that's, see, see, that's the thing. Like, I'm, tr- I'm actually... And I'm going to poke fun at myself, but I'm trying to I'm trying to drop some pounds so that I could eventually begin to, you know, like when we work, work towards like TV, whether if it's as a as a video journalist or for some TV station or something. But like but I, I get exactly what you're saying. You mentioned something that stood out about people who are used to work with a co-host to, to working solo. 
-hmm. very few people have been able to do it successfully and as great as the one and only Mike Francesa. He worked, you obviously was co-host of Mike and the Mad Dog. And when Mad Dog left in 2008, he began doing shows by himself. Rumor had it that I believe it was Sid, Sid, Sid Rosenberg, who was going to be his next co-host, but it didn't, it didn't pan out. So I'll ask you, why is it more difficult for a, for a radio host and broadcaster to go from working with someone to solo versus working solo to having a co-host? Uh, because the solo host has the ability to shrink what they say to be able to adapt working with someone. Whereas if you're used to working with someone and then you say it's all on you and you're used to banter, mm -hmm. you're used to bouncing something off someone, uh, you know, producers are nice to contribute to a show. When they do it too much, you're losing the listener, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because that person, they're putting the cherry on top of the Sunday. They should be adding something, but if they're too big a part of the show, then to me, unless it's set up that way, like DA, for example, right? Yeah. Damon Mendelara, DA has Bogish and he's got Mraz and his group, but he chooses when to let them in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's a two-person show, it's kind of understood that both of you are doing the show. But if you say, go do it on your own, I love Zoe. I just talk lovingly about him he would not be able to do a solo show by himself wow. because, and that's not a dig at him, oh, but, absolutely. For, yeah. but for him to have to think about, I've got to set the topic. I've got to do the, you know, there's the blocking and tackling of radio as well, where you got to integrate social media. You've got to talk about what platform you're on. You got to mention the show. You've got to drive the phones when you're in the host chair, it's very different than being in the captain's chair. You know, it's like going on a drive up and down the East Coast. If you're the if you're the co-pilot and you're saying get off this exit, that's one thing. You can mm -hmm. fall asleep and it ain't no big deal. Driver falls asleep, you're probably gonna wreck. Mm -hmm. That you know, in a way, it's kind of that sort of difference. And I think the solo host can adapt easily because, like, there was a, a time that we were at the Gillette once when Zoe and I were working together. And Zoe got sick and couldn't do the show. And they wanted to send some slappy down with me that, quite honestly, I didn't want to work with. And it wasn't, hey, this guy isn't as good as me. It was, I know by myself I can do a better job with this show, mixing in some guests and doing calls, than having this guy who's going to be completely intimidated to work with me, and I know he's not going to get a word in edgewise, so to hell with it. Let me do my thing. And I did, and it worked. And, the, you know, the PD, even though I didn't really get along with him, he was like, okay, that worked out. He was like, you know, you can definitely do it solo. And there's a part of me that's like, well, duh, I've only done it. You know, I did it solo. <laughs> I think you'd yeah. know this kind of deal. Uh, but I just think it is a different there, shoe. There is a real psychology to this business that people don't get and don't understand. There is the blocking and tackling of radio, but it's also changing because of social media. And I swear to you, I swear to you, Shu, if I ever hear you do a show and the first thing you do is they have the production that plays and it says, you know, the, the shoe show, blah, 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 all that stuff. And if you come on and say the exact same thing as, as that production just did, 
I will poke you in the eye when I see you. <laughs> like, it, you know, but but to the point, yeah. shoot, seriously, it's yeah. the, you know, you got to learn. There are crutches that people have in this business that when you listen to them, you're like, okay, they haven't been taught or they haven't been coached. And there are little things that I could point out to people that are doing national radio, by the way, that do stuff that makes me just go, what are they doing? <laughs> like, why? We need more immediacy in this business. We need more get to it in this business. You know, I don't need to hear the production or the open of a show. And then hear some guy be like, well, this is the Dick and Herman show. And here's how you call us. And today on Dick and Herman, you know, uh, Hugh Jackman or whatever. Oh my God. Great. I'll listen to four o'clock then. I, you know, like golly, there are so many hosts that don't get coached right now. And they do so many little things that drive me nuts. But in all honesty, shoe, that is, that's the advantage that I have. I've been coached by people in Boston, in New York, in Hartford, at two different networks, at satellite radio. I have a wealth of experience and understanding how to do this business and how to run a show that is different than most people that are going to walk through the door. And I have very definitive thoughts on that. And it's mm. been taught to me from people like Mass Teller and like Chernoff and people like that, that I've learned over the years. So there's, I, I just think at the end of the day, um, working at the craft matters, Yeah, but you got to have someone show you a, why it matters and B the things to work on that are really going to make a difference in your presentation as a host. And this has evolved for 20 some odd years for me in terms of, I know what 90 sports radio was like. I know what the aughts radio was like. I know what it sounded like in the beginning of 2010, but I think as we hit the 2020s here, we're kind of going back to a little more discussion and not the um, they suck, call me now kind of radio that yeah. we had for a long period of time, especially in the Northeast Corridor, if that makes sense. Uh, it, makes, it makes a ton of sense because for me, I could hear the difference. I mean, you could hear the difference just as well as anyone in, in, in this business where it's like, oh, my God, like they, they, this team absolutely blows. Well, guess what? I'll trade this guy for a bag of peanuts. Like, he, like it's just like, why? Right. Be like, based in reality with someone. Thank you. You might, be, you might be willing to trade someone, okay? But, A, you're not going to give someone away. No one operates that way. And, <laughs> and you know, a little bit of like the joke that I made earlier, Shu, yeah. about the whole – you know, well, how come they didn't get that guy in the third round? Well, how about this? Maybe if you look in the whole third round of that draft, there might have been one player that was worth a damn that worked out. Exactly. Otherwise, it's just grunts who make the roster and maybe don't get a second contract. People don't know about how many guys, you know, on average, 20% of the guys drafted into the NFL, on mm -hmm. average, 20 to 25% get a second contract. But by God, if Bill Belichick didn't hit on a seventh round pick that was here for 10 years, 
uh, every year because he did it once with Julian Edelman. So why can't he do that every year? It's unrealistic expectations. The problem is everybody wants to be a hot taker and be like, well, if he found a all-time quarterback in the sixth round once, how come he can't do it again? Those are the people I want to kick in the face. Like those are the same people that I, I literally look at in Boston. I say to myself, what the, what the F in hell is wrong with you? Like, Trolling. Do, 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 do you do you not? Under, and this is the thing that I want this. I'm about to go on a little bit of a rant and I'm going to have fun with it because this is going to turn into banter. The number one thing that really pisses me off about Boston radio, and this is not just for one station, for both stations in particular, is, well, Belichick was able to, to draft a guy in a sixth round and at 199 and he was able to get real lucky for, for 20 years. Like, first and foremost, it takes a special type of circumstance for it to come and for it to all fall into place. This is an anomaly, not the norm. Stop with the absolute BS of, well, this guy was a, was a seventh round pick. He, he, I mean, why can't Bill Belichick find more diamonds? In him? It doesn't work that way. I've been critical about the guy being, being a poor analyst of talent but stop with the whole notion of, well, if you could do it once, you could do it all the time. It doesn't work that way. Shoot. Here's the thing about that. The whole drafting and Belichick and stuff, right? They hit on Brady. They hit on Edelman. But if you look at some of the ways they've, they've used their draft capital over the years, like when Belichick says once they basically traded Garoppolo, it became an all in situation. It's because they were making more moves with veterans yeah. It towards the end of Brady, they were trying to make this situation work for as long as they can, knowing that eventually there were going to be some credit cards that were due. And oh, by the way, you're you you cannot build a football team around Tom Brady and be simultaneously building it for someone else at the same time, it's unless impossible. you are lucky enough to have that guy slide in there. And it was untenable for them to be able to keep them. You know, the, it really comes down to we look at it and say, well, this guy's a genius. How come he can't wave the magic wand and figure it out? He's a genius because he figured out how to make this last for two decades. That's the genius part of this. Yeah. Now it's time to reinvent and figure out how to make this team good again. And I'm with you. There's just a there's a flawed thought process on how football teams are put together and the way the Patriots did it. Like, Hey, not for nothing, but they shipped a sixth round pick to Detroit for Kyle Van Noy and mm -hmm. Kyle Van Noy was an all pro player here, or at least a pro bowl player for what was it? Three years. Yeah. Three years. Mm -hmm. Okay. But well, by God, Dallas got a sixth round pick that year. And this guy's going to be there forever. And, you flipped a six-round pick for three years of a Pro Bowl linebacker. You cannot bitch about that. But yeah. people do because they don't have perspective on it. I think perspective is everything because the thing that I look at and I listen to, to, to Boston Sports Radio locally, and I don't know what it is, but I've come, I've come away feeling that it's a, it's a market full of hot takers and fans who, are, who want to bring hot takes to, to the radio airwaves. I have the approach, whereas, listen, perspective and being realistic is my trading call, like my call and call, if you will. Not, oh, 
why not just go get some guy who was drafted in the third third round? Let's see if we can make it work or go get a guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick. Let's bring him here. It could, we can make it work for a year or two. And it's, it's just like there's a reason why that Fitzpatrick has been a journeyman in his NFL career. Why mm-hmm. in God's green earth do you want to bring him here and you're expecting him to be the savior of the of the St. New England Patriots, like, and I and I use that loosely, but like, really, that's not realistic at all. If you're going to bring a point to the table for a point of discussion, my philosophy is okay. Have some actual factual content. Like, for example, you, I, I'm sure you may have heard heard of this. This was, I think, last year. It was last week. One of the most moronic sports takes of all time, locally. This is no indictment against the individual. It's got to be Gary Tangway. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It was actually something I heard on 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 Felgren Mass. True story. Oh, about the David Pasenak take, and I, 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 I'm telling you, I literally, I damn near choked on my food. Where I heard, I heard Mass say. You should trade David Pasternak for Sidney Crosby. And, and Sidney Crosby is absolute. No, no, not Sidney Crosby. David Pasternak is overrated. And I'm like, mm. I'm sorry, what? Pasternak's overrated? You mean the same guy for the last four years who's averaged more than 30 goals. And even in 2018-19, he only played 60, 66 games, scored, still scored 38 goals. What the Like, it was like, what? I get that you do you, you do it for the sake of, people to call in and to rip the host apart. I get that, but it blows my mind that we've come away from being able to bring a take and a perspective to the table while not driving a fan base off the, off the edges, if you will. Well, it can't be WWE. (laughs) And that's what it is. I mean, and I've said that, you know, about at least one person on that show that it's the whole, all right, let me lick the finger. I mean, see which way the wind's blowing and let me go the other direction. Like that's, that's not how I do. That's how a lot of people do sports radio. It's the whole, well, I'll just be contrarian to go the other way to be able to get a reaction. There's a smarter way that you can do sports talk than yeah. just doing it like that. And I think shoot, it's turned into, um, you know, a bit of a, so an epidemic. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I want to say pandemic, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Bit of an epidemic in sports radio to where people get into it and they think, well, that's what I got to do. That's how I got to get noticed. Every once in a while, you're going to have a take that's going to be a tad askew, as I would say, mm-hmm. and people are going to react to it. But overall, are you packaging the content in a way to where people can enjoy it? Are you having a semi-realistic discussion? And look, I think the best radio when you're trolling or you're messing with the audience or you're having fun, it's almost as if it comes across with a wink, mm-hmm. you know, where you can hear it. It's like, yeah, I know they're messing around, but boy, this is really funny how all these people have gotten worked up over it. And you're almost in on the joke versus is this guy really that stupid that he just said that there's a big difference between mm-hmm. taking that take and using it almost as a wink and a nod, like uh, watch, watch how everybody's going to react when I say this versus by God, this is what they should do. And people being like, what are you an idiot? Think <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's about approach and it's about like, how do you present it? It's like, you can't present steak as 
as fresh raw meat that you just killed in a freaking animal slaughterhouse. You just can't. Like it's just like, wait, what the hell is this? Like, hey, this, hey, this fillet is delicious, but I'll tell you. This chicken fried steak, man, this is so close to it. You're like, hey, what? There's a reason I got slathered with gravy because it's okay, but it ain't that good. Exactly. But you you needed it to, 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 to overcompensate for the fact that it's a shitty steak on oh, chicken steak. Like, come on now. That's right. <laughs> I mean, am I gonna Popeye's chicken sandwich or am I gonna get a chicken sandwich from like a convenience store and try to compare them? No, 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 no. By no, the way, no. most I, overrated sandwich of all time, chicken Popeye Popeye sandwich. I hate that sandwich. Oh, we're done. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that now. I'll tell you that. It's so overrated. <laughs> chicken sandwich, I'll tell you that. Like, you know, the whole Zaxby's and all that stuff. Like, when we was just down in Florida a little while ago, and I'm we're driving by and we see the signs of my what was Zaxby's, and I'm like, let me tell you about Zaxby's. Like, you know, mm. the inner fat kid in me came back of all the years of traveling. You know, it's really funny, too. Yeah. I used to have um when I would travel for college football, there was probably a five-year period where every Saturday I was getting on a plane and going to do a game somewhere, right? At least six, seven times a year. Mm -hmm. I had a find an Arby's thing on my phone mm -hmm. because I would go to like Virginia or Baltimore or places like that. And up in New England, there ain't no Arby's anywhere. There's one out near the Auburn Mall on my way out to UMass. Not oh, that I stop there every man. time I go to do a game, right? Mm -hmm. But I – but. Everybody on the crew used to bust my balls and be like, oh, what armies did you go to this time? I loved going to Richmond, Richmond, mm. Virginia. So I'd go call a game there, right? Yeah. I'd land, and right near the airport, there was a concept restaurant for Arby's mm. where they had, like, turkey and chicken and stuff like that, and it was all, you know, like, it was almost like a rotisserie thing when you walked in there. Oh, yeah. And I would tell everybody, oh, my God, to tell everybody about it. But uh, and I would say that that was like the greatest Arby's of all time. Then I would start getting, you know, people on the crew who would be like, hey, man, look at me. I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in St. Louis and I found one of those Arby's that you were talking about or something like that. But to your point, well, first of all, fat people love to eat. Number one. So that's why I always <laughs> I'm a foodie, so I understand. There you go, right? And and it's the whole yeah. Everybody's got their thoughts on it, but man, for for the longest period of time when I traveled, I would I'd go to my app on my phone and I'd be like, okay, I'm in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia this weekend. Where is the Arby's close to where I'm staying? It was just one of those things. But to your point on the food, like there's always going to be a referendum on the chicken sandwiches, and uh, it is it is shocking to hear you uh, be out on on Popeye's chicken sandwich. I I'm not I'm not sold. I mean, it's not because I think the chicken is bad. The chicken is actually amazing, but the concept of trying to turn it into a sandwich. First and foremost, get pickles out of my freaking face, please. I hate pickles with a passion. That's the Ooh. other part of it. Ooh, that's tough now because they put the pickles on the uh, on the uh, Chick Fil A. It, it, uh, I, I take it out. I take it out every See, time. Some I, I know that my kids are not fans of the pickles on the sandwich, but mm. every time you know. But if we're all in the car and I get one, I'm like, I right, put your pickles right on mine. Like I reach in the back, <laughs> and put the pickle right on it. Like I load it up with the pickles because everybody's giving theirs up, but. It's it's the devil's penis soaked in vinegar. I'm sorry, but that's just how I feel. That's how I feel about it. I I just I that's how much of a hatred I have towards pickles. It's that, that is bad. Great. It is, it is that it is that bad. I got I got one more thing for you before before we end the sure. recording. Um, when you look at today's sports landscape, and you see you see guys getting like 
max contracts. And so this is across all sports. Like most recently, Fernando Tetsis, 14 years, $340 million. And then in, in, in the NBA, you saw that also recently with Giannis Atetokounmpo, they got the super max deal in Milwaukee. Yet there's something to be said about these smaller market teams investing in their star. What is your take on smaller market teams investing in the store in hopes that they will be able to get a championship out of out of that time that they have them while hoping that they'll still be able to build a contender that will be able to contend for a title every year? Yeah, I, I think for some markets, and especially in the NBA, it's tough because one guy changes everything. Yeah. You know, I had the statement at the beginning of the year then we're going to find out that Tom Brady is the NFL's LeBron James. And what I mean by that is when LeBron walks in your building, it's automatic championship expectations, automatic. Same for Tom Brady. When he walked in the building in Tampa, it didn't matter. They were seven and five. It was championship expectations. And they got there mm-hmm. because that guy, the night before the Super Bowl, is texting people plays and stuff like that. That's how I envision LeBron. The level of engagement kind of rises up, but it makes those guys that much more important in a Milwaukee where you have a Giannis to where maybe if there is a dude who had a great career mm-hmm. and is about to JJ Watt it and say, Hey man, I want to go win that becomes a place they can go to in the short term. I think for places like Milwaukee and Orlando and some of the quote-unquote mid-major markets within the NBA, sure. when you have the stud, you hang on to them like grim death because it's all you have. And when they go, as we saw in Cleveland, mm-hmm. you know that you're likely to kind of slide down that ladder a little bit. It's very cyclical in the NBA. You're on the whole not going to see a Patriots run or a San Antonio run very often. So I think your windows are smaller. I think guys like Giannis become more important in a mid-level market, and you just have to hope you can get one. Because in L.A. and in New York, there's going to be an owner there who's got plenty of money to where they can spend outside the salary cap. Mm. In Milwaukee, you might be able to do it for a couple of years, but it's not sustainable. Or Orlando, you can do it for a couple of years, but it's not sustainable. But it's also set up now to where everybody's working in a salary cap, and then however much you spend over, that's on the owner. And it's normally connected to having a big-time player. So I think, too, we got to think about five-year windows in the NBA. Mm. Look at Golden State. Oh, yeah. Three out of five, they had KD. Well, look at them now. They haven't hit rock bottom, but they're retooling a little bit. I think that is more the norm. And as long as you can get those players to stay, that really becomes the big deal. You know, Milwaukee, I thought they were going to lose Giannis. I did not think they were going to be able to keep him. And the fact that he stayed, then it's, man, now we got five years. How can we make it work? Zion in New Orleans, same thing. Are they going to be able to keep him long-term? If they do... They got a chance to maybe, maybe put together a run for a decade because he is a transformative player. So the situation matters, the owner matters, but most importantly, it's that stud who landed with that franchise. If that person stays there, then you really do have the chance if they're the right player. And that's going to be this edition of the Sugar Rights Podcast with uh, Sugar Rights and the host, uh, I can't even say host, 
I feel like I'm already getting into this <laughs> into this little trick trickery slow calling you host already. It's like I feel like I'm talking to a, a co-host for God's sake. So you're, I mean, you're way, dude, you're way good, man. Go with notorious because apparently <laughs> I'm just I'm just notorious. Like okay. the, 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 the notorious, I guess you I guess fine, notorious for your sake. There you go. The notorious Sandy Gresh. Of, of CBS Sports Radio, WPRI 12 in, in Providence. It's definitely been an absolute treat of, of, to have you on this podcast, my man. Thank you for the invite. And listen, just keep banging away. Just keep banging away. That's I tell people like you. I tell others. You have a podcast. You're on the radio. You're getting reps. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're making the connections. You're doing the right thing. And always remember, I think this is really for business across the board. Yeah. It doesn't happen on your timeline. So if you have the patience and the work ethic, it does come. It will happen.